when you're ready, let's start this game. Welcome to BCPL Unstacked and let's unwind with New York Times bestselling author Kristen Harmel. This is our first author interview. Let's see what Kristen is reading slash watching and all about her latest book, The Book of Lost Names. Hey, this is Sarah. And this is Stephen from the Bay County Public Library. Hi, Kristen. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good to see you. <laughs> Very good to see you too. So we have questions kind of organized on our end and we're just going to try and like read the questions and let you answer and we can edit anything out. So if you want, if you're, if you're like, please don't, please redo, just like say something and we'll remember to, to cut that one out. You, you so. know what? It'll be less that I say something wrong and more that my four-year-old comes like running screaming into the room or something. In the middle. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet, but I like knock wood, right? <laughs> Hence why I'm at the library today, because if I was at home, it'd be a 12 and a six-year-old running around causing oh, my havoc. Goodness. <laughs> First, please introduce our listeners to Ava and your new title, The Book of Lost Names. Sure. So The Book of Lost Names is the story of a female forger in World War II who stumbles into the French resistance mostly by accident and winds up helping save the lives of hundreds of children. So Ava is a graduate student working at the Sorbonne Library in Paris when her father, who's a Polish-born Jew, is arrested as part of the Valdiv Roundup, which was the big roundup in Paris in the summer of 1942. So Ava and her mother are also on a list for deportation, but they escape and so they flee using hastily falsified documents that she's made herself. They wind up in a small French mountain town in the unoccupied zone, where a priest working for a local resistance network finds out about her false papers and basically recruits her into his network, something that she thinks is only going to be temporary, sort of in exchange for help getting her father out of the detention center where he's being held. So she reluctantly agrees, sort of with the motive of helping save her dad. Um, But soon she begins working with a forger named Remy, who is an accomplished forger with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder who thinks he's better than she is and, you know, thinks, ah, what is she going to know about forgery? But it turns out she knows a lot. She really has a knack for it. And because they're helping save children, she soon becomes very passionate, uh, not just about saving them by giving them these false documents, but also about preserving their real identities, especially those who are too young to remember who they really are once their names are changed. So they decide to encode those identities in a 1732 religious text, which they begin referring to as the Book of Lost Names, hence the title of the book. <laughs> See, this was an easy title. Some of the titles are more difficult. <laughs> Toward the end of the war, after their resistance cell is blown and Remy disappears, the book goes missing too, possibly looted by the Nazis. And so all the secrets that are within the book vanish. But 60 years later, Ava is a librarian working in Winter Park, Florida, and she happens to glimpse the book in an article in the New York Times about Nazi looted books and the search to return them to their rightful owners. So as the story unfolds in the past, it is also unfolding in the present, where we see Ava trying to summon the courage to go to Berlin to finally, hopefully, reunite with the Book of Lost Names. I loved your book, and I read it all in one weekend because I couldn't leave the characters, especially the dynamic between Ava and Remy. I've been recommending it to all of my friends. My mom just read it this weekend. How has this, um, how was this book inspired by actual events? That is a great question. So 
Um, this is actually my my fifth World War II novel and my fourth set in World War II France. And, and I just love researching that period. I come from a journalism background. And so the research I do is really in-depth and intense because I think that's just kind of what being a journalist taught me, that you have to research everything fully. So it was while researching my last two novels, uh, The Room on Rue Amélie and The Winemaker's Wife, which both partially involved the French resistance, that I stumbled upon these mentions of document forgers and thought, you know, what did these people do? How, how, how did they forge these documents? Who were they? Where did they come from? And so I began looking into it and what I found really did become the basis for this book. So there's not a real Ava, but there were real document forgers who, uh, who her methods were very much based upon and who the danger she was in were very much based upon. So those include a man named Adolfo Kaminsky, who was a very prolific forger in Paris, and a man named Oscar Rizowski, who was a very prolific forger in the unoccupied occupied uh, region of France in, in kind of the, the southern area. So a lot of her story is kind of drawn from their stories and the stories of the networks they worked with. And also the story of the looted books, which kind of wraps around the forgery story. That's a real thing too, which is incredible. So as the Germans were pulling out of France, they were uh, taking lot, like anything valuable they could get their hands on with them, including books, books that they thought might be valuable, books from Jewish libraries, books from Catholic churches, books from Masonic organizations, just anything that was kind of an enemy of theirs, they, they took. And to this day, almost every German library still has books that were stolen by the Nazis 75 years ago, which is incredible. And in fact, at Berlin's Central Library, which has about a three and a half million book collection, more than a million of their books are books that were looted, which I mean, that's to me just such a staggering number. So the story that kind of wraps around the story, the story of the looted books is very much based on the reality of that and the ongoing search to reunite those books with their rightful owners. That's fascinating. I'm going to jump out of our question just a little bit here because I want to <laughs> expand on that a little bit. When you're writing these kind of things, the, your, your novels, and you do you kind of start with that historical event that you kind of found interesting and then flesh it out around that? Or is it more you start with a character? No, that is a great question. So I think I start with a central premise, which is fact-based. So in this, it, or I, I don't know, maybe premise wouldn't be the right word. I guess a histor the historical context. I start with a vague idea of the historical context. And then I look into it to see if there are, there are enough details out there to hang the story on and, you know, and to make the story real and to make it like a rich environment and a rich learning experience for the people reading it. But also to make sure that, I don't know, like the, that there's enough there, that it's colorful enough, that it's interesting enough. Like it just, it has to feel like the right story. And I knew when I came up with the idea for this one, I just, when I had the idea, I wonder if I could write something about forgers and what they did. It was all very interesting, but it didn't click in my head as a story and until I also read about the Nazi looted books. And there was just something about the books and the forgeries that went so naturally hand in hand to me. And then when I had the idea for, as I mentioned about the book, for Ava encoding the names of those children within a book that would later be stolen, it just sort of seemed like the way to tie it all together. So I had those elements before I had the characters. And once I have the broad element and that I know there's enough research there to support the story. Then I begin setting the plot in motion. Does that, does that answer the question? It, it does. It does. Um, I haven't had a chance to read this one just yet, but uh, I have read uh, 
what is it, uh, when we meet again. And so uh, it kind of has a, a similar kind of historical nugget there in the center with the, the, the POWs there in Florida. So it, it kind of, the, the two novels have that kind of similar thing that made me curious have, uh, which part came first and uh, yeah. Well, you know, Stephen, one of my favorite things about um, about writing historical fiction is having the opportunity to to teach people something new or show them something new in a way that's engaging and entertaining. So, I mean, hope, I mean, I would hope certainly that you're not picking up my book and feeling like, oh, she's just beating us over the head with facts. Cause you know, I, I don't think I am. I think I'm, I'm coming up with, um, you know, interesting little tidbits of history that maybe we don't know about yet, or that maybe you don't know that fully about. So you mentioned when we meet again, which is about German POWs in Florida. And before I researched that book, I had no idea that there had been more than 400,000 German POWs living and working in the United States during World War II. I mean, that, that was just a, a historical fact that had completely escaped my knowledge. I had no idea. So that was a really fun book to dive into the research of. And I feel like uh, I feel like all of my historical books have taken a little known fact or a fact that at least to me wasn't known and, and kind of expanded upon it and created a world around it. Does that make sense? It does. Mm -hmm. okay. and, it, and it kind of leads into the question that I, I was going to ask originally before we branched off is obviously you've done a lot of research with forgery. You've done a lot of research with champagne. What's the weirdest thing in your search history? Oh, the weirdest thing in my search history. <laughs> like something that would get me in trouble if somebody like looked at my Google searches and they oh, were like, yes. oh, yes. um, so the book I'm working on now is set in like a lot of large portion of it is set in the forests of Eastern Europe or two. And it centers upon a young woman who was raised in the woods, like away from civilization and basically how her world collides with uh, the lives of a group of um, fleeing Jewish refugees as the war begins and how that changes everything for her. But because she was raised in the woods all by herself by this crazy lady, the crazy later lady taught her to do all sorts of things like survival related things. So I'm sure that if you looked at my search history right now, you would think I was crazy or that I was planning to like go underground for an extended period of time. So the, the thing that would probably get me in the most trouble maybe would be I have an extensive search history about how to kill a man with my bare hands, which I don't plan <laughs> on doing, but which, but which my character needed to know how to do. <laughs> I know lots of things about how to murder you if you're sitting in a chair and I come up behind you. I, may, may I never have to use it. <laughs> and now I just sound like a crazy person. It's all good. <laughs> And mine kind of um, deals with the, the the research part of things. And listening to your other interviews, you really enjoy the archival materials. And as a librarian, so do I, and thoroughly researching the historical parts of it, several of your titles are set in World War II, often in France. When did World War II become a time period you were interested in? And um, has this led to future books, which, as we know, it, it has done five books in World War II, but... Yeah, yeah. So those are great questions. So I have been interested in World War II since I since I was young. The book that really shaped me as a writer, that really kind of sent me on the path that I'm on now, was The Diary of Anne Frank. So I know that's a book that influenced a lot of young readers. I read it, I think, as a preteen. I wish I could remember the first time I read it because, you know, I, I keep, I've been mentioning it a lot on this virtual book tour I'm on because that's a common question. What makes you write about World War II? But I think I must have been about 11 or 12. And it really resonated with me in the way that it probably resonated with everybody, that it was such an accessible story. And, you know, you could feel 
what it must have been like to be with her in that secret annex and, and with that fear, but also with the normalcy of life unfolding. And I still just get to get chills thinking about it. But aside from just touching me in that way, the book did something else for me. I had always wanted to be a writer other than a very brief period when I thought I was going to be a pop star, which that was never going to work out because I can't sing. So yeah, no, that wasn't going to happen. But aside from that, I mean, honestly, I, I wanted to be a writer as long as I can remember, but I also wanted to be a person who changed the world. So I had, you know, pictures of Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy. And like, those were the posters I had on my wall growing up. And I thought that entertaining people with novels and changing the world were two completely mutually exclusive things until I read the diary of Anne Frank. And I realized you could do both. You could, because if someone reads your book and their heart is changed just a tiny bit because of it, or their heart is opened just a tiny bit because of it, you've done something about changing the world for the better, if that makes sense. And and mm -hmm. the Diary of Anne Frank was the thing that made that click in my head. So I think that that book was so meaningful to me and really became a part of my journey as a writer. And in fact, all of my books have had, um, e even my early books, which were chiclet, which had nothing to do with World War II or the Holocaust. Every single book has had a minor character named in some way after Anne Frank. Like that was just sort of my little tribute to her. So that was something that kind of set me on that path. But then, as I said, I started writing chiclet, which obviously has nothing to do with that. I started writing when I was in my um my first novel I wrote when I was I think 23 or 24 it was right at the height of the chiclet craze like right when everyone was reading Bridget Jones's diary and the devil wears Prada and all those kind of books and it, it just it was it fit who I was at the time it fit what people were reading at the time but it didn't fit who I grew into if that makes sense and mm -hmm. I think what I was always meant to circle back to once I learned how to write books was this this story at my core which was writing about World War II. So that has been an interest area of mine for a long time. And I feel very much at home writing about that right now. Uh, to kind of expand, one of the questions I had here was, uh, and you mentioned Anne Frank being in all of your, your, your books here. Uh, are there any other Easter eggs you've got hidden in there? I do. That is a good question. And it's, it's, a, it's a strange one, but my, so my first book I wrote in 2003, toward the end of 2003, which was uh, the same year and the same time period, the end of 2003, that my childhood best friend died in a car accident. So his name was Jay Cash, James Franklin Cash. And he is also in every single one of my books in some way, shape or form. So it might be someone named James. It might be someone named Jay. I think uh, I translated the last name Cash into French in one of my books like it just you know like just there's some little nod to him in every book and I'm still really close with his mom uh and so it's something that she looks for in every book too so I can never stop doing it because it's such a <laughs> it's such a meaningful thing to me just that my mm -hmm. writing career started basically as his life ended and I, I just want to always keep him with me so that's really kind of the only other that's like more of a personal easter egg I suppose but there's always some kind of Jay or Jay Cash or I think in one of my books there was a school named James Franklin Cash High School or something like that so there's always some connection to him. Very sweet. We've kind of done a deep dive on a lot of your Friends of Fiction stuff and uh, some other interviews you've, you've done. And I heard that you, your first book, I think you said, was about 120,000 words. And then you had to knock down about a quarter of it to get where your editor wanted. Um, so what is your editing process and how do you determine what stays or goes? Well, A, let me commend you for your awesome amount of research. That is incredible. What a, what a like great nugget to have pulled out. That's awesome. And honestly, what a pleasure to come on a show or do a chat where um, where someone has really taken the time to do that research. That really means a lot. So thank thank you for doing that. That's super kind of you and very professional of you to have prepared that way. Thank no, you. No, thank you. I mean, Sarah has asked me not to bring up Mystica, but... <laughs> 
I it's okay. To- I, I referenced my, my pop career, but yes, I, I used to want to be a pop singer named Mitha. It's okay. I, I, I've come to terms with it. Yeah. We were going to be, the band name was going to be the Popsicles because we sang pop music. Wasn't that so witty? <laughs> and I'd even written a song on my keyboard um, that <laughs> it was called, Why Did You Leave Me? And it was... <laughs> It was just terrible. <laughs> so it's a it's a wonder that side of my career never took off when I was nine. I I, I can't to this day I can't understand it. But <laughs> moving along from Mystica, my embarrassing pop star phase, my editing process. That is a great question. So I tend to write long, and as you mentioned, my first book I wrote very long, just because I I really didn't have any idea. I had never done that before. I had never taken a class about novel writing. I had majored in journalism. I had taken one short story class. But they don't teach you anything about novel writing really in a short story class in college. So I didn't know what I was doing. 120,000 words felt right. It was not. I had to cut it down to about 90,000, which was awful. But that became my first novel, which was called How to Sleep with a Movie Star. Not a real how-to guide, I promise. Although, talk about starting your career on the wrong foot with people thinking the wrong thing about you. <laughs> like I'm writing these awful like R-rated guides. No, it was it was a very PG, just chiclet book. But editing process now, I still write relatively long. So I, I, um, I outline first, I do an extensive outline first. And my outline is so long, it's almost like a very abbreviated first draft. My outlines tend to be about 20,000 words, which is our, that's very long for an outline. That's about a fifth of one of my finished books because my, my finished books are about 100,000. So 20,000 is what my outline is. So building off the outline, as I'm, that's when I kind of get to know the characters when I'm writing that first draft. And I think particularly at the beginning when you're getting to know the characters, at least for me, you, you waste a lot of extra words in the process because you know, the way you hear them in your head isn't always totally clear at first. The things they're saying, you kind of have to work through. And I also have a really bad habit of repeating words in first drafts. Softly tends to be a word of mine that I have to just do. That's always the first search I do when I finish the first draft. Like how many times have I said softly? In fact, they're all words that talk, that are like about people speaking to each other in in like quiet voices. Softly murmur, <laughs> whisper. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Apparently no one speaks at full volume in my book. <laughs> It's just but, hush um, murmurs. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Hush, hush. Yes, I, hush. I gotta start employing that word. <laughs> but I think it's because they're all doing secretive things. Like they're, you know, they're working for the resistance. And they, you know, you can't really bellow at each other as you're working for the French resistance. So I have to go through and eliminate a lot of that word repetition. I have to go through and eliminate a lot of the scene, or not eliminate, but cut the scenes that go on too long. And also eliminate scenes that don't do anything for the book. So I, mm-hmm. I write long maybe 110,000 words. I cut that down to about 100,000 before I send it in. And that's just eliminating that repetition and the run on scenes. And then I work really well with my editor. So she'll usually send it back with another word I've used way too frequently, but also with things like, you know, this relationship developed too quickly, or I don't understand why these two people like each other, or I don't understand this character's motivation for this. She's the same editor I've had since my 2012 novel, The Sweetness of Forgetting which I think I sold, we sold to her in 2010, which means we've been working together for a decade. And I keep saying that if she ever leaves, I, I do not even, I, I do not know what I would do. I, she's like, she's the other half of my brain. And when my brain's not functioning fully and my brain's never functioning fully. <laughs> Did that answer the question about editing? I feel like I, that yeah. was, I needed no, to edit yeah. that conversation. That was kind of a run on <laughs> conversation about editing. <laughs> No, I think we're, I think we're, it kind of speaks to it as, as 
just like right there is I'll say certain things over and over and then you'll touch back on it. And so it's, it's nice to know that that's part of the process of yep. not just everyday life, but also professional writers. Yes, that's true. The, the nice thing is in, in a book, you have a backspace button, like on the computer, there's actually no backspace button in real life. So, <laughs> which is a problem I consistently have. Things come out of my mouth and I'm like, backspace, backspace. No, that doesn't work. So. <laughs> take two is a, a phrase I use take quite two. a bit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My next question was that I love that you feature the heroes among us, uh, regular people doing extraordinary things. As the reader, I know we all hope to be a hero among us, but that's kind of a challenge because you're often putting yourself on the line. When did that become a reoccurring theme? And does Anne Frank almost have a tie with that as well? Or Well, that, that's such a good question. So the heroes among us, actually, um, that developed before I was even a novelist. So I, um, I used to write for People magazine. And when I started there, I was still in college. It was my senior year of college. And we still had bureaus then. So instead of just doing like general assignments or being assigned to a specific type of story, which is how they're organized now, you just did regional stuff. So I was assigned to the Miami Bureau. So I did stuff all around the Southeast. Which meant that I get to go to the Super Bowl a few times. I get to go to the MTV Movie Awards. I get to go to the NBA All-Star Game. I get to interview all these celebrities. Like, it was so much fun. I got to do a lot of really fun things like that. But my favorite thing at People were the stories that they called the Heroes Among Us stories. Well, my, fa my second favorite after um, hanging out with Patrick Dempsey. But that's... <laughs> He's, he's so dreamy in person, though. No wonder they call him McDreamy. <laughs> but um, no, my, my favorite stories that people were called Heroes Among Us stories. And that's basically what they were. They were these stories of ordinary people, just not celebrities, but just regular people, just like all of us, um, who had found it within themselves to basically rise up and be extraordinary and change their corner of the world. And I don't think I understood as I was beginning to write these World War II stories a decade later that, that I... I that's what I was doing. I mean, it took me until just a couple years ago to think like, oh, wait a minute, that's kind of the recurring theme in my novels too, which is interesting because it's actually one of those heroes among us stories at people that I think really inspired my first World War II novel, The Sweetness of Forgetting, which was my 2012 book. And that was, are you interested in me telling you about the story? Or Always. Like, blah, 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 blah. I just, Come on. just dab on and on, we, and on. We will take everything you give us. Okay. <laughs> So just, just, just wave at me to like, stop if you know, I'm going on too long. But um, so it, it was the story that I always say it was my favorite story at People Magazine. And I did a lot of really cool stories there. So, you know, that's, it's big to say it was my favorite, but I mean, cause I was with them for 12 years and then a little bit after that, but it was a man named Henry Landworth. He founded Give Kids the World, which is an organization or not an organization, but a charity for that provides Va uh, kind of dream vacations, they call them, to critically ill children and their families. They bring them to Florida, they can go to Disney World or Universal or whatever, and they have this place that they call a dream village, which is in Kissimmee. And it really is, it's like this storybook village, but it's fully medically equipped. Mm -hmm. So these children who, who are medically fragile can come there and their families don't have to worry about them getting adequate medical care. So it's an incredible thing to do. Henry Landworth, like I said, was the founder and his story was fascinating. He was a Holocaust survivor. He was in the concentration camps from age 13 to age 18, including Auschwitz, which of course is one of the most notorious, you know, infamous camps. And he came to the United States in 1950 with just $20, worked his way up from being a, I think a bellman at a hotel to managing the front desk, moved to Florida 
well, just long story, but wound up connecting with Walter Cronkite and John Glenn, who became his lifelong friends, which is extraordinary. They went into business together, made millions, and he turned his millions into Give Kids the World, which was, it's such an amazing story in and of itself. But the one thing that stayed with me from our interview was that he said, it was just this little thing he said in passing, which was that to survive in the concentration camps, he had to learn to turn his feelings off. And when the war was over, he didn't know how to turn them back on again. And I thought that was so interesting and so profound and such just a just such a fascinating look at the psychology behind someone who had gone through something like that. I think there are so many psychological reactions to the trauma that he must have gone through. And that just happened to be his. But it was a psychological reaction that really stayed with me and became sort of the basis of the character Rose in The Sweetness of Forgetting. Because, I mean, he told me that story, I think in 2000, the end of 2003. And I didn't write that book until 2010. So that was, a it was something that stayed with me, I think, until I was ready to write it, if that makes sense. I don't think I had the maturity to write that story. Um, in 2003, I would have been 24. And I, I just don't think I was there yet. I was a, kind of an immature 24. So I needed to become more who I was meant to be first. And then I think when I was finally there, um, those words kind of poured out of me back onto the page. So that was, that was sort of the Heroes Among Us connection from people that led me into writing about what I'm doing now. And then once I started, I, I couldn't stop. I mean, this is just feels like you know, every book I research, I find something, another avenue I want to go down. And all of these avenues, I think the common thread is this idea of what do you do when you're, when you find yourself in the darkness? Um, do you retreat further or do you yourself become the light, you know? And, and it's mm -hmm. an interesting question to explore in the context of World War II history. It really is. Fantastic. In, in your book, she, there's like a little hint of a mystery element to it. And I know it's a delicate balance to try to have that mystery stay hidden while at the same time getting the reader there. And I guess my the way I'm kind of phrasing this question is, do you tend to try to make it where the readers find and solve the mystery before the, your characters would, kind of making certain silly thoughts that don't lead them to where you as a reader would be like, oh, but how can you not see that kind of thing? So I guess I'm asking, how do you take care of the readers and while still keeping your plot twist while not making them seem completely just be foolish out of all, out of everything. That is, that's a very good question. And I'm not sure I'm going to have a complete answer because I feel like some of it I just do by feel, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know that I'm really necessarily saying, um, you know, I have to plant this clue here, or this clue there. I think I would actually be terrible at writing like an actual mystery or an actual thriller or anything like that. Cause I think I would, I would be, I don't even know. I, I don't know that I would handle the details very well, but I think I want, I think in the books that do have a big twist at the end, I like the twist to not feel completely out of the blue, if that makes sense. But I'd rather the reader get there around the same time I do in the book, like that the characters do, or just before. Because, I mean, and, and maybe I don't always do that well, but but that's, I think, what I endeavor to do. I mean, I one of my books has a pretty big twist at the end in terms of identity, like, like someone who you thought was somebody actually wasn't. And that's kind of one of the central plot points that... Almost like a lot of people have said, I once I got to the end, I went back and read it again and had a completely different experience with the book, knowing what I knew at the end. And that was really satisfying to me because I think it wasn't it wasn't a twist you couldn't have seen coming, but it was a twist you couldn't have seen coming clearly, even if you suspected it. And I think that's tricky to do. And so I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I always execute it well. The book I'm working on now, I don't think has a big mystery at its core. It's more just 
action and emotional conflict driven, if that makes sense. But the mystery is always kind of fun to to play around with. It it almost develops though, just when I'm outlining. It's not like I sit there and say like, okay, this this is going to be a mystery at the end. How can I plant it? It 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 just kind of comes about because I'm maybe I'm just a sneaky person. I don't know. <laughs> Do you think the you you have to gear your writing toward the reader being the one to solve it, or is it better to kind of have your characters solve it? Um, I think it's better when the characters don't solve it, and the and the reveal kind of comes as as a surprise to the characters at the end, at least with my books. And if the I, I'm fine if the reader gets there a couple chapters before the character does, if that makes sense. But I don't want them to know the secret from page one in those books that have mystery woven. And, and if they get there on page one, then A, they're super smart, and B, I need to do my job better. <laughs> <laughs> so ha- hats off to them and back to the drawing board for me. <laughs> there were some moments in um, Book of Last Names, and I think it was moments where I was like, yay, I was just happy that that's what happened. I didn't know it was going to happen that way, but it felt very satisfying. There's a, at least two moments oh, in there that, that oh, I won't spoil you. I, I mean, that's spoil that. <laughs> Whereas, and, and when we meet again, I was the opposite going, no, don't believe that. How could you think that? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting about writing about World War II, if you choose, as I often do, to set the story partially in the present too, is that people lie for all sorts of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they don't even know they're doing it. Sometimes it's a lie that they told 75 years ago that it has been easier to stick with than than change, you know? And sometimes they're just hiding from something that they can't face. So I think there are, I, I think, I don't know. I, I think the older we get, the more we're all works of mystery in some way, you know, because I, I think we're never totally open books. The things that scar us change us and the faces we choose to wear or, or the, the um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, sometimes the way you face the world isn't always exactly who you are does that make sense Mm -hmm. and and i think that for these characters wrestling with something as difficult as having gone through that war 75 years ago perhaps the face they choose to put toward the world is very different than who they are at their core and maybe they don't even know it you know what i mean so i think that kind of contributes to the mystery so you began writing at the age of 16 which is incredibly impressive um i didn't know what i was going to be doing at 16. are there any skills as a journalist that have come in handy as a fiction writer yeah um very much so and yeah i was just a weird 16 year old i um i i knew i wanted to write for magazines one day like i knew i ultimately wanted to be an author but i didn't or you know to write books but i didn't know that i or I didn't think that I had the ability to do that yet. So I thought, all right, I'm going to start my career as a journalist. And the sooner I learn from that, the sooner I can be an author. So why not start now? I mean, I guess it worked, right? (laughs) It seemed like a good plan and it turned out okay. But yeah, so I I started writing for local magazines with no training really whatsoever. I mean, I did go to journalism school afterwards at the University of Florida, but uh, I started, you know, before I had that training, I just read books about how to be a journalist and tried to absorb everything I could and read the newspaper every day and read every magazine I could get my hands on and, and all of that, which by the way, is something I always advocate or uh, that I always suggest that 
people do if they want to write a novel too. Just read everything you can get your hands on that's in the genre you want to write for. I, that's what I did when I was trying to become a journalist when I was 16. And it's what I did when I was wanting to become a novelist a, a few years after that. But skills that I took with me from journalism into novel writing. Yeah, I, um, I think it's made me better at research. I think it's made me much more comfortable calling up and asking people for questions or asking people questions or asking them for guidance or assistance. I think otherwise I would feel a little nervous to do that. But you know, it, that was my job as a journalist. I had to call up, call people up and ask, you know, hard questions. And so what I'm asking now is usually easy compared to that, um, except if I'm interviewing um, Holocaust survivors, that's always sort of difficult still. So I think it's made me better at that form of research. I think it's made me better at knowing how to do just the broad research, you know, where to find facts, how to delve into the knowledge, how to how to pull everything together and synthesize it into something. I think that kind of comes from my journalism days. And I also think that writing dialogue has been influenced by years and years and years of, of taking down what people were saying and transcribing it exactly and putting it on the page. Because, you know, you intellectually know, anybody intellectually knows that we all speak a little bit differently. Nobody has the same cadence or the same, you know, speech patterns or things like that. And so in a novel, your characters have to sound a little bit different from each other. But it's one thing to know that and another to actually be able to execute it. And I'm not saying I do it perfectly. I mean, I think probably everything I do, I could improve upon. But I do think that's something that I do better that than I otherwise would have because of all those years as a journalist, understanding that everyone I interviewed had a different voice, if that makes sense. It makes uh, sense. So as a, as a starting off a journalist, I understand that you worked in Tampa Bay as a sports writer. Uh, so it's a two-part question, depending on how the first qu first answer goes. Are you a sports fan? I am. Um, I used to be much more when I was um, when I was younger. I mean, I, I still certainly am, but it's interesting. When I thought I wanted to be a sports writer, it was because I was obsessed with baseball. I grew up in St. Pete, Florida, and at the time, we were the spring training home of the St. Louis Cardinals, and they had their advanced A minor league team playing there. So that was actually my first job before I was a writer. I, um, I scooped ice cream and sold souvenirs at um, for, for the St. Pete Cardinals and for the St. Louis Cardinals during spring tra training. And then actually, a year or so later, when I was 17, I think I wrote their their spring training program, which was really a cool thing Aww. to do as a teenager. But so yeah, I was a huge baseball fan. And that's what led me into wanting to do sports writing. But what always appealed to me about it wasn't sitting at a game and doing the box score and like, you know, writing about how the game unfolded. It was always talking to the players and finding out what made them tick. So it's exactly the same thing that drives me today. I just didn't see it yet. I, I didn't understand yet that all I wanted was to know what was going inside on inside people's heads and like what like okay, you've made it to the major leagues. What, how are you, like, what did you do differently mentally than the guy who's also talented, but that maybe didn't make it? You know what I mean? I was always so fascinated by what had mentally gotten them there, but also how fame had changed them and just all the things that make people people. Like, <laughs> but at the time I thought my interest was purely sports and it wasn't, it was humans. It was, it was the human brain, basically the psychology, you know, which is much more clear to me now. But so yes, I, um, I started off as a sports writer. I did that for years and I still do enjoy sports. I'm, I'm a big Gator fan because I went to the University of Florida. So I love Gator football and my husband has a cousin who plays for the New York Rangers. So we're big Rangers fans. So it's kind of, it's just fun to root on a family member. And I remain a Cardinals fan, but they left St. Pete years ago. So it's, it's a little harder to follow them today than it used to be. My follow-up was going to be, are you a Tampa Bay Buccaneer fan? And how do you feel about Tom Brady? <laughs> Oh, sure. Well, I'm, I'm originally from New England also. So I come from a family of Patriots fans. 
And so I always have rooted for the Patriots too. So it's very interesting to see what's happening in Tampa Bay right now. I am a Tampa Bay Bucks fan because I grew up in Tampa Bay, but I honestly am not as big of an NFL fan as I am a college football fan. So I watch it, but I'm not, I, I just, I don't follow it as closely, but honestly, Tom Brady coming there does make me a bigger Bucks fan than I've been in before, than I have been before. Uh, kind of touching on what you say as, as... <laughs> I don't know if that's a popular or unpopular answer, but I, I do like Tom Brady. Actually, one of my very early people stories was the first year he, I think it was the first year he won the Super Bowl. I got to go with him and his girlfriend at the time to Disney World for a People article. <laughs> so that's I awesome. with Tom Brady like 20 years ago at Disney World. <laughs> Check that and off he, your bucket list. He was list. a very nice guy. So. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> I mean, I, as you do, haven't you guys got, you guys haven't gone to Disney World with Tom Brady? What? No. <laughs> Not this year. I mean. Weird. <laughs> Not that, yeah, yeah, that's true. Me too. I haven't done it this year yet either. We'll have to, I'll, I'll check with the schedule, see if he's available. Yeah. <laughs> we can all go together. He's a little more closer to do it now too, though, at least. That's true. That's a good point. Yes. Uh, kind of what you were saying with being, thinking that you're a sports fan, but really just being in that human profession is kind of something that we in the library profession are kind of used to as well. Because most of the time people are always saying, hey, you must really like to read. You must really like books. And that's such a small part of what we do. It's, you know, a, a lot more dealing with the the human element, the people and trying to get them the information or what whatever they're looking for and help them out. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, I like books, but I stick because of the people. So it's 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 kind of connected in that same similar way. That is awesome. I've actually never heard a librarian specifically say that, but that completely makes sense because books are only really a small portion of what you do these days, I think. I mean, it's really about connecting the community and and giving people resources that that I think a lot of people don't even know they can find through the library. So that completely makes sense. And it's about helping them and steering them in the right direction. That's such a, what, what a fascinating thing to say. All right, cool. Well, what are you, you you're, you're invited on my next Tom Brady trip. Oh. To <laughs> What's oh, that? You. What am I reading? <laughs> yeah, what are you reading right now? Oh my gosh, what am I not reading right now? Ugh, I'm so busy reading. It's great though. Well, I just, I'm not reading it now, but a book I do want to mention that just came out that has to do with a library is Fiona Davis's The Lions of Fifth Avenue. Mm. So I actually read it for the first time back in January. Um, it's set in the New York Public Library. It's such a good book. It was actually Good Morning America's pick for August, which is awesome. Fiona's a friend and I could not be happier for her. What, a, what an awesome honor. I loved the book and I blurbed it when I read it back in January. So my, my quote is somewhere on her back cover, I think. But I have reread it again recently because she and I have done a bunch of events together because our books both revolve around books and around librarians. So it's been a really nice, and, and we're friends. So it's been really nice to do that. So that was a great book to reread. What else have I read recently? So I do this Wednesday night show called Friends in Fiction. It's on Facebook mm -hmm. uh, Wednesday nights seven and I do it or seven Eastern and I do it with Mary Alice Monroe, Mary Kay Andrews, Patty Callahan Henry and Christy Woodson Harvey. So this summer I've read at least one book from each of them. I've read their each of their new releases. So that's been great. I just started reading 28 Summers by Ellen Hildebrand because she was our guest on Friends in Fiction this week. And I should have obviously read it before she came on, but I was on the wait list at my library. <laughs> so it just came through and I was like, oh yeah, now I can read it. And it's very good. Bar. I just read the new one. I just, I think last night, the, the night before last, finished the upcoming book from Susan Meisner, who's an author I really like. She writes really great historical fiction. And she has a book coming out, I think it comes out in April. 
it comes out sometime next year about the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And that one was really interesting. It was the nature of fragile things. It's called very good book. I also just read a debut novel called The Lost Apothecary, which is set in like modern day plus the end of the 18th century in London. That one comes out sometime in the new year, but it's a debut author. Her name's Sarah Penner, and that book was really good too. It's been getting a lot of buzz, so I think that book's going to be kind of a big one in the new year. What else, is there anything else I'm reading right now? I don't think so. I read The Vanishing Half recently and really, oh. really liked it. Vanishing Half is on my list as Sorry, well. Oh, oh, did have you read it yet or it's on your list? No, it's on my list. I've heard really good things. It's been so successful. It's been a really successful book and it's, it's really well written and it's not what I expected it to be. Like from the description, it, it took, it took turns I didn't expect, but they were exactly the right turns. I mean, it was just such a well done, a well done novel. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I hope you enjoy it too when you read it. Obviously, your your new book does involve a librarian. We've got National Library Month coming up in September. We are a library-based podcast, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions here. Do you have a library card? I do, of course, for the Orange County Public Library System here in Orlando. That's where I started, well, semi-started my, my library career was at the Orange County Public Library. That was my first public library job. What do you well, love most? Awesome. Li- I, I go to the Dr. Phillips. I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. You said you were over at the Dr. Phillips house area. Oh, I, I was just saying I'm in Dr. Phillips, so I go to the Southwest branch. It's just down the street. It's where my, my wife and I got married over there at his house in, in Orlando. What do you like most about libraries and what's your first library memory is what I'm trying to get at instead of my history. So my first library memory, you know what? I don't have a first library memory because as long as I can remember, I've been going to the library. So there's no real clear memory of libraries. It was just a place that I could fill that insatiable need to read. You know, I, I, I used to read, like when I was really young, I was super into the Bobby Twins, Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, but the old books, like the ones that I got from my grandparents' attic, the ones that came out probably, I don't know, in the 50s or 60s or whatever, not like new ones with the glossy covers. Um, and so the library became a place where I could find those and and keep up with the series. I mean, I think I read every every one of those books, the, I think the three investigators, the all the ones that were kind of related to that, those all came from the library. Uh, so yeah, and I, I grew up going to the library in Ohio when I lived in Ohio, and then the Pinellas County Library System, I think it was Pinellas County or maybe it was just the St. Pete library system, but in St. Pete, Florida, you know, I went to the library there all the time too. But the, what was the other part of the question? Do, what do I like about? Yeah. What, what do you do like most about libraries? About libraries? Um, so a, a couple of things. One, I, I, I mean, I love that I can fill my love of reading still. I mean, now that I'm an author, I get a lot of early looks at books because people want me to blurb them, you know, give like the little recommendation. So I usually have, the opposite. I, I usually have too many books to read as opposed to too few, but I try to filter in books that I really want to read too. And a lot of those books do come from the library. So for example, I mentioned, I just started reading 28 Summers by Ellen Hildebrand. Uh, that's a library book, but I haven't physically gone into the library. I got that through my Overdrive account. And so that's been a great source of joy and reading for me during this shutdown. I mean, we haven't really ventured out that much. We're being really safe or just really cautious. And so I think I have like 10 holds right now, whatever the maximum number of holds is on digital books, on on eBooks. I have that at the library right now. Just all these big books from this summer that I've been wanting to read. I'm like, hurry up, get here, even though I don't have time to read them. So it's been just a great source as a reader 
but also, you know, I will tell you, we touched on this earlier, but I think that the idea of libraries offering so much more than just books is really meaningful to me because I have a four-year-old and none of my super close friends, when I had them, none of my super close friends here in Orlando had babies at the same time. So, you know, that's, it's a little isolating when you have your first child and, you know, I had friends in other places who had babies or had, you know, young kids, but, but not here. And so I started going to two library groups that were for, you know, like I think when he was three months old or however, however, whatever age I could start him, it was when I started him. It was like a story time once a week. And I did it at two different libraries. And those were where some of my earliest mom friends were from. And, and just that sense of being connected because it's so isolating. And, and, you know, when you have a child, especially because I had him a little bit later, I had him when I was 36, almost 37. It was a real identity shift for me because I had always just been... Kristen the writer and and like now I was Kristen the mother and like how and I, it was really a period of figuring out who and how I was this new person and going to the library and going to this group and being a part of this group at both libraries meant something to me and will always mean something to me and it, you know it was just a way to interact and to explore this new version of myself and also to get really good book recommendations for him. I mean, I still can remember the day that we went to a, a library group and we did it every week, but I remember reading the book Jazz Baby, which is this awesome picture book that I never would have found or picked up on my own, but he loved it. The librarian read it. He completely, I mean, he was just a little baby, but he was so excited and like so into it. And I, I immediately bought the book and it became the book that we read like almost every night for a couple of months because he liked it so much. So I mean, so the, the library, you know, it just became like this social place for me, but also I think a place that helped me to be a better mother when I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, you know, obviously I'd read all sorts of books about like, you know, but you don't really know what you're doing until the baby gets there. <laughs> Well, if you're looking for other book suggestions for kids, I definitely recommend B.J. Novak's uh, The Book With No Pictures and Secret Pizza Party. Okay, I've heard such good things. All right. We're, we're very much in a cat in the hat phase right now, which is good because those cat in the hat knows a lot about books, um, teach stuff. So he's super into cat in the hat. He has his own little um, cat in the hat hat <laughs> and bow tie and gloves. It's very cute. So he puts those on and we read cat in the hat. Well, there's so many good children's books now. It's just amazing because I know that when we were growing up, I don't remember as many good illustrators and authors. So it's just, ex it's ex expanded a lot. I agree. And and going to the library is such a great way to find out, you know, what what librarians have loved. I mean, that's the thing. It's not just going in and looking at books on a shelf and trying to blindly choose something. I mean, that's part of what librarians are there to help you with. You, you know, to say like, this is what I'm looking for, or this is what I love, and they can help steer you in the right direction. And I think that, you know, I, I think you would find something similar at an independent bookstore, or even mm -hmm. a Barnes and Noble, but you know, but that's something that, that I think as the world is becoming more of a world where we just receive things in the mail by shipments, we're missing some of that. And a library is a way to reconnect with like real suggestions and real guidance and real opinions by people who have actually read the books. So that's and, meaningful. And, and knowing what's a good read aloud is so different from, oh, the pictures are pretty, but it, the experience of reading it aloud to your child is, is much different. You are totally right. I agree. Random question, how has the pandemic impacted your writing process? 
Um, it has changed a lot because I went from having a four-year-old in school to having a four-year-old in, at home with me, um, which was very different. Uh, and so I used to, I used to, uh, you can hear him screaming in the background now. I don't know if you can hear that, but as I said that, there was like a scream. My husband's home with him. He's not screaming in a vacuum by himself. But yeah, it's, it's just in case you're worrying about my mothering abilities. Like, oh, he's screaming. Don't, don't worry. Um, <laughs> So uh, I, I was accustomed to having those 20 hours a week to write, approximately 15 to 20 hours a week to write. That was my writing time, and I don't have that anymore. And so it has the, the thing it has changed the most is my schedule. I am an, a profoundly exhausted person now because I, I wake up at uh, usually at about 5 or 5.30 to write. So I, I write in the mornings before he gets up. And then he's up a little while while I'm writing and, you know, he just, he's with my husband or he's watching his iPad or whatever. I try to write every day till about eight or eight 30 and not just write. I mean, there's a million emails to respond to. There's the whole business side of things you have to do too. And there just aren't enough hours in the, in the day anymore. I also write on weekends until about two o'clock, which is unfortunate because it means I kind of don't have weekends anymore because like if I actually am writing during that whole time, that's really draining. And that sounds silly, but if I'm writing from seven to two, it, it just takes so much emotional energy to write. I mean, it's, I don't know how to say it. It's not, not that everything doesn't take emotional energy, but it leaves me really drained. And then I'm just not myself the rest of the weekend. But I really was struggling with how to get those words on the page until the, it was the friends and fiction authors. So the other four authors I mentioned, Mary Kay Andrews, Mary Ellis Monroe, Patty Callahan Henry, and Christy Woodson Harvey. It was Mary Kay Andrews and Patty Callahan Henry who had been, who started doing writing sprints together in the morning. So they would start at seven, they would text each other, you know, they would get their coffee for Patty and Diet Coke for Mary Kay. And they would text each other, go, and they would write until they got down the number of words they wanted to write for the day. And that kept them accountable to someone and it kept them working on a schedule. After they had been done doing it for maybe 20, 25 days or so they invited the other three of us and so now the five of us all write together every morning and you know occasionally somebody skips I think Patty and Mary Kay are on day 70 I think they said today so they've been wow. I mean it's just it and for all of us it's been the only way we're getting words on the page and we all start at slightly different times we all leave at slightly different times I mean like I said I always sign out at about 8 30 so I start a little bit earlier but everyone's there and sitting down on weekdays by seven with very few exceptions and so we write together for at least an hour and by write together I mean we're not we're not saying anything to each other but it's just we're accountable to each other we say go we kind of check in at the beginning when you leave you have to say like okay I'm I'm checking out now I wrote 500 words today or whatever and I've been writing probably six to 7,000 words a week since I started doing that, which is exactly what I need to be hitting to be on track to turn in a book in November. So that's how my writing schedule has changed and it's how it has all been salvaged. I'm exhausted, but it's been, it's, it's been wonderful and a lifesaver. <laughs> a lot of your writing seems to involve exploring foods and flavors and traveling to locations and such. I'm, I'm assuming that's obviously changed a little bit here with the, the, the pandemic as well. How do you plan yeah. to adapt to that moving forward? You know, like I said, we're kind of being cautious. And so I don't think I'm going to be one of the first people back out there on an airplane and certainly not going to be one of the first people flying over to Europe, which is where a lot of my books are set. So that that's hard. I mean, I had already decided that this next novel was going to be set in Eastern Europe, which I know less well than France. If I were writing another book in France, I'd probably be on much more comfortable ground because I've, I've lived in France. I've written several novels about France. I'm very comfortable there with the with World War II history, with culture, with somewhat with language, but it's, it's a comfortable place for me. Eastern Europe and particularly uh, the forests of Eastern Europe, 
Europe are not as familiar. And so I've been relying more heavily on expert sources. In fact, there is a forest guide in the Nalabaki forest in Belarus who speaks a little bit of English and uses, I assume, Google Translate for the rest. And he's been helping me with about a million questions about the flora and fauna of the forest. And like, would this be realistic? Would that be realistic? And he knows a lot about the history of that area too. He's even commenting on things that I haven't asked when he reads the pages. Like, no, this wouldn't have happened or no, they wouldn't have, this isn't how they would have started a fire in a fireplace or, you know, little things like that. So right now that's taking some of, some of the place of traveling, but I mean, nothing can really take the place of that. Nothing can take the place of knowing what a place smells like and feels like, and, you know, sounds like, and, and all those things you can't learn from a, you know, no matter how many books or pictures you look for. I'm doing my best, but uh, that is a, it's a struggle and I'm really trying to get it right. Obviously, as you said, it takes up a lot of your time between your family, the writing process, having people like us harass you for interviews and questions throughout your day. How do you, outside of some Gainesville bands that I, I know that you're, you're, you're a fan of, such as Sister Hazel and such, um, how do you relax? Ooh, um, okay, so yeah, I am, I'm a fan of Sister Hazel. We actually had them on Friends in Fiction a couple of weeks ago, which was super cool because we get to talk to them about storytelling and songwriting, which was something I hadn't, you know, really talked to anyone much about before. That was really illuminating. How do I relax? <laughs> Sleeping. <laughs> Just go to sleep. <laughs> It's like the greatest treat to me these days. Like, oh, it's bedtime. Yes. No, I, I relaxed by reading uh, prior to the pandemic. And I hope at some point in the future, Disney World was a big thing for me. We live about, uh, I don't know, 25 minutes or so away from Disney World. I've had an annual pass since I was 10. I got married at Disney World. I'm just a big Disney person. And, and with having a young child, it's great to go over there for just a couple of hours, you know, not stand in line and, you know, for tons of rides or anything, but just go over and walk around, do a couple of things. Like that's very relaxing and enjoyable to me. And I, I miss it a lot. I, I miss not doing that right now. Right. I miss doing that right now. Other ways to relax. I love to cook and I'm really into wine and not like in a, oh, I'm going to go get drunk on a bottle of wine right now kind of way, but like in a, in a, I, I, in, in, interests me. And so I really enjoy doing wine tasting and like appreciating wine and pairing wine with food and that kind of stuff. So that's something I, you know, that we can still do at home, which is enjoyable. One of my favorite wines tying this into Disney was one that we discovered at Epcot over in uh, the Japan area. It's a, a plum wine where they actually infuse the, the plums inside the wine. So you get to eat the, the plum as well called Choya. So if you ever get back to Epcot, I highly recommend that one. Oh, oh well, I, I for sure will be back to Epcot. I don't know when, but when it's safe again, I will for sure. And I will look for that. Thank you. Well, I mean, we're, we're kind of wrapping this up at this stage. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to share? No, this was just so enjoyable. I really appreciate you having me. What a wonderful way to spend an hour. It was just, it was lovely to chat with both of you. And I appreciate the thought you put into this and, and the research. And you asked really, really, really good questions. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on board and, and being our first author interview. So. Oh, was I your first? Yeah. It, oh, it was no kidding. It I was, was a torn little between, nervous. Yeah, we were torn between you and Neil Gaiman and... I, so obviously me, I mean... <laughs> Yeah. So much. So, I mean, what's, what's he done? Yeah. yeah just, <laughs> just joking. Besides not got back to me after all those little tweets I sent him. Rude. <laughs> so rude. I'm just joking. Thank you so much and enjoy your evening. You too. Thank you so much for having me. And, and, and ho hopefully, hopefully we'll meet in person someday. Maybe the next book tour, I'll be able to come up there in person. That would be lovely. We'll meet in person, us and Tom Brady you and you. Mind, and I, exactly. <laughs> or enjoy. All right. It was really nice chatting with both of you.
Thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us at the BCPL Unstacked. Uh, several copies of the Book of Lost Names are available in the library collection for listeners who are looking for your next read. And they can also be purchased through your favorite local bookstore or online vendors. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye. Bye.